1: All right, here we are with that beautiful introduction the dramatic piano, uh, using Zencaster here. Uh, we are back today with Brian and Mike here. Another episode of around the coin excited. We had a great pre-show. we got some great topics warmed up, uh, blockchain, Jeff Bezos, Brian's conference. Brian, what's up, my man?
2: Not much, man. Uh, happy Easter to you and everybody out there. It's, uh, it's been an exciting morning uh, speaking to Mike. We miss Faisal. He is a world traveler. I don't know where where in the world um, uh, Faisal is at this moment, but he is definitely um, having a good time, from what I can tell, doing work and enjoying life.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally forgot. Uh, we were saying pre-show. If you don't have children, Easter tends to slip your mind.
2: But if you do, you're you're hiding Easter eggs all over the place. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun time. Enjoy it while it's there. You know, even if you're a religious, you know, against religion or whatever, uh, you know, uh, find events to have with your kids, even if you have to make them up. Uh, so um, I have a lot of friends is like, hey, I'm not into religion. I'm like, well, you know, find different things to uh, interact with your kids at the very mm-hmm. least, if you don't find any other meaning to it.
1: Yeah, just make up your own holidays. I'm a- <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Why? Do they don't know. Why do you uh, all right, own cool. Holidays? let me let me ask you brian so we talked pre-show about your guest appearance which is a smashing success up in the bay area tell us tell us what you did and who you talked to
2: absolutely uh well i was graciously invited by uh ryan gilbert of propel venture partners um to speak at their sausalito uh ceo summit and it was absolutely amazing i um a really big honor to uh, be able to speak to that. Propel is essentially a uh, a venture capital firm that works with, you know, I wouldn't say fintech startups uh, exclusively, but primarily focused on that. Uh, the BBVA Bank is one of their primary benefactors, and um, uh, they are looking to raise this uh, fund to be uh, quite large. And uh, so it was an honor to be there. I got to meet uh, a whole lot of um, uh, really interesting folks. And I got to speak about the Voice First revolution, about how voice commerce and voice payments will interact. It was a private function. I did give away a lot of stuff that I Normally, maybe give subscribers in a multiplex magazine, uh, and um, and certainly some people I consult with. So, there's some really interesting tidbits about their immediate future. I got what, to what meet, do you think, uh, Brian?
1: Let me let, let me ask you a sure. story, Devin, to into that. What, which, what was what topic do you think was most picked up on or mo- people were most receptive or surprised to learn about?
2: Uh, you there? Oh, we got cut yeah, off. yeah.
1: Oh, uh, which which topic do you think was most uh, people were most excited, and it was new information to them?
2: Um, I think the biggest thing that was a shock to just about everybody in the room. Uh, I saw a whole lot of pens start writing. There was a lot of copious notes being taken <laughs> during the entire event. I'm so impressed by the level of focus uh, from not only the executives at BBVA Bank and its CEO, who is just a phenomenal individual. I got to meet Carlos, but uh, also everybody at Propel. They genuinely were engaged. Nobody was looking at their phones, really. They were literally writing on paper. Um, So I started talking about what I brought up, actually, in my latest issue of the magazine, is uh, what I'm defining as a personal assistant. And a personal assistant truly knows exactly who you are, everything about you contextually, far more than Siri, Alexa, Cortana, and Google have uh, to this point. And I talked about the challenges of privacy issues and what this will all mean to banking and financial institutions, health institutions, everything that uh, where KYC and uh, and privacy are going to converge. And they were absolutely stunned how quickly we're going to get there and how very likely it won't be those companies that I just mentioned that will be building the, the personal assistant. And uh, I talked about those opportunities for startups and legacy companies, and it is going to be huge. I call it Google class. By the time I got done, they really got to understand why it was such a big opportunity. So it was um, it was a good time by all.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if they have any companies that are specializing or build, building anything particularly relevant there. Um, well, I, we'll include I, those I, show notes. Yeah.
2: I can tell you this, that uh, privately there were quite a few um, startups that were essentially pitching, <laughs> if you will. And mm-hmm. I was absolutely blown away with what they're going to be looking at. Uh, I can tell you this, uh, BBVA Bank is probably, I don't want to even say probably, is most definitely one of the most cutting edge, innovative Technology organizations I have come across in the banking realm, they are just heads down focused about what the future is going to look like and actually wanting to invent it rather than chase after it, which is really impressive. I very rarely see that in banking. And I, I've i met with bankers since the 1980s. Uh, this was actually fortifying and rejuvenating for me because mm. it's unlike you what know, I've, I've seen. One,
1: I'd love to get your, your thoughts here. Um Uh, on something well actually i'm gonna i'm gonna write a note here before we dive into the topics i want to give two shout outs while we're still early in the show to first these are two articles written uh jason fiedler and uh jason is he's written an article here on medium called the magic of mobile pay it's a short read uh it's a good one jason specializes or i should say he's an investor at red sea ventures and he's previously ran uh, market expansion at uber And we'll have a link for that in the show notes. The second is this Medium article called The Question for Mobile Payments Isn't When, But How. And that is written by Brett Kane. And Brett is the CEO of Urban Airship. Brett's got a few great pieces. Uh, This reminds me of you, Brian, with the uh, the analytical approach to writing in Medium. And we'll include uh, notes in the show notes there. Um, And Brian, going back to your your topic here, one thing I want to ask is, do you think there's a parallel between – I mean, I sort of look at banks similar to the way broadcasting networks were – and the way even in a way even retail stores today are where they're the conduits for delivering value and now with you know with with the world that we're in today it's become you know you look at amazon google netflix hulu they're all competing on what they're competing on content and the the methods or the rails to deliver value really has become irrelevant And i think with verizon acquiring yahoo and so on there's a lot of uh, it, commonalities between the conduits or the rails, if you will, between telecommunications and the same could be true in banks, right? I mean, for me to get my money, hold my money and then, them take loans out. I mean, those are fairly basic features of, you know, a product today. If you're going to create a bank, assuming you, you have security in place, they're probably sitting around. I would imagine the executives at those, uh, banking institutions and thinking how do we how do we sort of adapt and what value do we provide in the next 20 to 50 years and it cannot be to store money and to give loans i mean what what's worked in the past with giant buildings and downtown centers that have huge pillars and they emphasize security th- those aren't going to be the the winning playbooks of the future do you think they're looking at it from the same sense of fear in a way or are they more excited i mean you, how, what's the what's the mentality of of banks on that front because for them to be so aggressive with innovation to me in a way indicates they're a bit nervous about their existing business model.
2: Well, nervous they should be. Nervous everybody should be. Anybody getting arrogant and complacent in any anything that they do, I don't care if they're sweeping a floor, uh, I think is is wrong. That's the element of human life. Human existence is about being off balance. Everything in nature is off balance, and it's, uh, that's the nature of uh, of growing. Um, in that you are almost like a fly in the room on the uh, you know on your call on this is yes they're looking at all these things and. You know, one of the interesting aspects and one of the reasons why I believe I was invited is, you know, you really need to understand how humans feel about their financial situation at any given time uh, to, to, to truly understand what the future is going to look like. I, I've always, for decades now, have looked at everybody's financial life through milestones. We have milestones that usually start with college. These are financial milestones throughout your life, and the the college milestone is usually a collaborative sort of event between your parents and yourself. You're taking out student loans, you're you're uh, encumbering yourself financially. Hopefully, not very much. These days, that's not the case. Um, the, the maybe the corollary to that, maybe in parallel, you're looking at another milestone, and that's a car loan. Now, we could extrapolate into the future. Nobody's going to own anything and cars are going to be delivered and all that. You know, yes and no. People predominantly in the United States are going to own a car uh, for a lot of reasons, at least for the medium term. Uh, I don't think uh, we need to worry about that milestone going away. How that how we arrive at owning a car could become interesting. You know, there are co-ownership scenarios that might m- make sense. Then the next milestone is probably going to be maybe renting or buying a place. Um, now, this may happen in conjunction with the traditional family structure. Uh, and again, I don't want to overlay my particular worldview or anybody else's worldview, but most of us have uh, who are here had moms, so uh, that means that they uh, cohab- cohabitated in a way and they planned a family. Uh, there's a lot of young people who don't see it that way, but that's the way it's been all the way down to Platonic era. I mean, Plato used to complain, these young kids don't want to have families anymore. It's always that way, somehow. I got to say, uh, most guys, if it was up to guys, they probably wouldn't have families, but somehow we get round up, rounded up and made uh, sane and clear, uh, usually by the, the smarter half, uh, the, the, the women, <laughs> yeah, uh, to, to form families. And so when you get when you form a family, you're creating another milestone in your life, and that's probably a mortgage or some deep financial commitment. That goes on to pregnancy. That's a big financial commitment. And then, again, uh, closing the circle on to college. In between all those 10 poles and milestones are a lot of financial events. When I talked to banks and when I spoke to sort of this bank, I, I talked about those milestones. I talked about, you know, you need to reinvent yourself around those milestones and become relevant at every stage in that life. And when you look at yourself as just a resource, then you're going to become just a resource and you're going to become uh, a commodity and you're going to become less. Entwined into their life. And my connection to voice first is proactivity. The AI that drives voice first that has proactivity, being able to anticipate these moments, being able to grant um, passage through these moments with financial bridges being built is going to be critically important to any new financial institution. And it's a very radical way. If This sounds logical to some people. I got to tell you, for most people in the financial world and most startups, most cutting edge, you know, young startups don't see it this way. They literally kind of just go and follow the person in front of them. So I um, I really think the reason why banks are going to be innovative is because they're going to deconstruct themselves and reconstruct themselves around the real milestones that take place in a human existence. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, the one thought that running through my mind is, is it inevitable that the total dollars that the banks charge to operate... Uh, at one point, you know, we're, we're, we're massive. And I wonder if that's inevitably going to decrease. You know, basically the, the cost operate, the basic features that we get as, as, you know, members of society say, I, w- I want to store my, my money safely. I want to get access to loans. I want to withdraw money anywhere. I mean, th- these sort of things were the, the, the pillars of what a, a financial institution like Chase or Wells Fargo might offer you. And I, I wonder if the cost in, all of that is inevitably going to decrease to where you know if you could if you could issue these features to me, if you will, uh, remotely and and nearly free using you know you don't need a physical location anymore. All you need is a mobile app. You need basically it's all software. I mean, could you displace a lot of the costs? And thus, I mean, for for some of these large banks, there, are they sort of sitting on their heels? Uh, you know, facing facing um, the wave of innovation coming down their throat. I mean. I, it, it's it's and I would say you know to create a perspective here it's it's probably a positive perspective for just about everyone in the world except if you're an executive at a bank I mean that or you know is somehow involved in the financial success of the bank. Um, I, I, what what are your thoughts on that? Is that is that the direction we're going?
2: Yeah, I really I, I really valid and uh, genius points here, Mike. I I would say this. You know, and I I talked about this pre-show and I've talked about this for years. When you ask somebody, do they want to pay for something? They generally don't want to pay for almost anything. Um, The reason for that is most most definitely what happens in society, especially when we're looking at the internet and the quota freemium model, is that we've uh, indoctrinated ourselves to believe that For example, you get a young child and you say, uh, where does electricity come from? They will point at the switch, the light switch or the uh, outlet. And somehow in a childish kind of view, of course, that's correct. That's where it comes from. But where does it really come from? And if you were to take a thought experiment for a few seconds with me and follow me down that wire – And look at all the different uh, ladies and gentlemen wearing yellow or white hard hats and connecting wires and connecting to transformers and connecting to various sources of energy generation, whether it be solar or a coal-powered plant or somebody riding a bicycle, turning a wheel, uh, has a generator on it or water, whatever. There is a tremendous amount of life, energy given to get that electricity to your door. And the, the reality is the same is true with the internet, and we can argue about how much of that costs and the amounts. The, the, the plain reality is, under the current modality we have where we people work and they earn money and they get paid and to you know, have living expenses uh, covered, et cetera. As long as that exists in our world, somebody's going to have to pay for something sooner or later. Everything is a transaction. Every single thing is a transaction. Now, we can argue that the amounts that one pays could be lowered because maybe the amounts of mechanical uh, load and cognitive load uh, being exerted uh, by people or individuals along the way have lowered. It's never going to go to zero. Then there's the other thing that I call value. There's price versus value. And as an old sales guy, I used to give these lectures all the time. You know, we always want to get the best price and get the highest value. Well, what's value? Value is a return uh, on your money, if you will, and a return on your investment in a case where that you're buying something. So sometimes, for example, you talk about banking. If you just want somebody to hold your money and move your money, then yes, that's a commodity functionality. And if that's all you wind up doing, I say this to payment companies too, A lot of payment companies will say, well, you know, we're doing payrolls and we're doing this and we're making value. We're doing loans. Those are all commodity services, I'm sorry to tell you, folks. Those are commodity services that can be duplicated. And Brian, anyway.
1: does it, doesn't it almost seem that like, like the the real uh, barrier to entry is appears it appears to be regulation? I mean, banks are not performing services which are you know so superior in technical aptitude that you know a, a you know five people in a room couldn't build software around. I mean, to, to store money, to transfer money to another person. I mean, these are not uh, these are not complex transactions. I'd imagine, imagine, you know, there are complex transactions they run, but are they hugely determined to a banking's uh, bank's core infrastructure and success? I don't think so.
2: No. And Mike, you make a good point, but all of the things you said are absolutely true when it works. And let's take a little trip with me back in time. Let's go to the 1920s when the financial system was not as cohesive and when you put your money into various vehicles uh, that you had thought had solidity because there are these neo-Grecian and neo-Romanesque neo-Roman- roman columns in front of the bank and they looked really promising. There's marble. You walked in. Everybody had a smug look on their face. There was a guard at the door. And it was a big safe. And you put your hard-earned cash in that bank and um, by the end of the 20s, it was gone. There was nothing left. The bank failed. There was nothing left. So – the reason why, you know, and I'm I'm not a person that likes to see regulation unnecessarily. I think it always impinges upon our ability to be creative. But however, your grandma, your grandpa, your your dad, and your mom uh, have socked away their money somewhere, and we have to be able to ensure that that money is going to be there when they need it. And we have to ask ourselves, how valuable is that functionality? That is a partnership between the laws and or government and the institutions that we've created around it, which we call banks. And in our modern era, and again, I'm all for fintech, but in our modern era, we almost toss that out like electricity. We almost assume everything's going to be safe because there's infrastructure there don't worry about it is there
1: is there any greater safety that a bank offers than a than than any developer that can hold bits and zeros i mean sure there's levels of security but aside from that it's a it's a financial calculation as to you know, bankruptcy and lending amounts and the, the nine X limit and FDIC insured. I mean, those things are not, they're not, they're not software security issues. They're banking yeah. and infrastructure questions, which,
2: you know, they're, I, psych- I they're psychological, sure they're-, they're psychological issues. What I'm really getting at, it, there's all of this is psychological. I mean, let's face it. What is money? W- what is even the digits on a screen? If I, t- if I went inside of your grand bank account and I moved the decimal place a few levels to the left, I can completely change your life. I can change your life to the point where maybe you're living on the street. I can move that decimal point places a few more places to the right to the point where I can radically change your life where you may never even need to work again, quote unquote. So what I'm saying is we are all based on psychological things, this whole thing about money and banking. So when we us nerds, we try to overcomplicate this with technology and saying, "Well, is it just a technology function?" Well, yes and no. I mean, the the, the reality is, I've been a Bitcoin miner for a long time. Anybody listening to the show knows that. I, I absolutely believe in Bitcoin as an investment vehicle, not so much as a currency. It has been an incredibly grand investment vehicle. Anybody listened to us the day the show went on air and bought at least one Bitcoin, they ought to give us a high five. They made a thousands of percent return on investment. And not that we're an investment advisor show. Uh, your your investment results may vary. That's my uh, thing. But my, yeah. my bottom line is yeah. the banking system is a couple of things. And we, we, we can't forget what it is. It is a technology functionality, but it is also a psychological functionality. And if bankers did what they should do, and what they should do is get back to their roots. Like our local banker would really be in the 1950s, 1940s, 1960s. My, my, my dad knew the local banker. Everybody went there. And they knew, the, they knew the milestones in your life. Hey, Joe, your kids are going to be go to college uh, in the next 10 years. We ought to start talking about ways to uh, get you to save for that. That was when the interest rates were reasonable. And a 10-year uh, CD could actually do something. Uh, to help uh, pay down what was be what would be a reasonable college expense. In fact, in 1965, if your parents put away, say, two thousand dollars on a CD for ten years, that would pretty much cover your entire tuition. All right, that's where we've gotten in our financial world today. See, the problem is, we need to find. And I call these people bankers in a sense because we're asking them to hold our money in a secure way, but grow our money and get us ready for our milestones. And the modern banker is going to find ways to take our money and do wonderful things with it so that they can meet our goals, so we can buy that house, so we can buy that car. And whether or not it is a bank or an entrepreneur in the Silicon Valley, that's another Another thing, I still am going to call you a banker because you're forming that functionality. Whether you're a legacy bank that does it or somebody in a hoodie that you know quit Harvard, it doesn't matter. You're still doing a banking function. And uh, if that's unsexy, so be it. Uh, but again, you better do it with a high level of cogniz- cognization that you're performing a psychological function. You're, inv- you're investing into the future. I want to send my kids to college. I can't afford it today. But if I follow what you say, I'll be able to afford their college tuition. That's Those are the milestones. And we've I, disconnected I, from that.
1: I'm fully with you. And I think those are great points. Uh, but I don't, I'm not sure if we're hitting the target, which would be, do we believe that the, the banking industry as a whole is, is set on an inevitable downspin? That, that technology and AI and all these other great features are going to make the cost and, and look at that as, as a cost of society. You know, the oh, yeah. cost of society is the revenue of, of the banking industry and Mike, the salaries that everyone makes. And I think engine, my bet is that that has to go down. I mean, we, we have to see in
2: constriction. The engine in their airplane is off. So they are just... Okay, great. Gliding. So,
1: yeah, I, right. I think, yeah, at, at the, a core, but, we're, we're seeing the same the same yeah, landscape uh, here.
2: I'm t- if you're talking about the banking tradition as it existed for the last 20 years, it's all over. It's a, it, they're a glider now. <laughs> all right. So, they're a glider. Yeah. Right. So the engine is off. There's They're definitely not going to break the atmosphere and they're just gliding. Uh, they're going to glide for a very long time, I might add, but... You know, but you have to understand, banking is a creature of financial regulation and laws, and they were designed to protect. Oh,
1: hugely. Uh, and I mean, they're, they're so intertwined with, with the Federal Reserve. And I mean, we, we look at it from the consumer level, but real banking happens on the, you know, at the airliner level, at the skyscraper level, at the level oh, of construction. Yeah. I mean, when they're taking out billions and billions of dollars, I think that's, that's where you're not going to see a startup come in. But I do want to get on to the main event for today, which is even Man, better than uh, the future of banking. We're going to be really focusing today on a few areas. We have three topics I want to dive into. Uh, blockchain, Jeff Bezos' speech, and then this fantastic article by Will Knight on technologyreview.com called The The Dark Side at the Heart of AI. Uh, before we get there, let me dive into this piece, uh, which I have become particularly attracted to and fascinated with, which is blockchain potential in healthcare. And this yeah. piece on healthcare IT news will include it in the show notes, but basically it's it's a bit skeptical on the application or the potential for blockchain to make an impact in healthcare. And I think to create a perspective around this, we're looking at, they reference a few interviews. They have the, uh, uh, what's his name, the Healthcare Solutions Uh, at Oracle, uh, Prashant Navarjan was interviewed and he asked the basic question of can we do in-flight decryption and re-encrypt it back? So these are, these are fairly technical questions saying, um, his basic theory here is that if, if it can't save money for the patient or the provider or the healthcare system at a whole, Um, what's the point or when is it going to get get adopted? And I, and I, and I look at this and I I kind of think that we're, we're not seeing the forest through the trees, right? Or the trees through the forest, whatever the expression is. And basically that, that, that the healthcare system as a whole is so intertwined and screwed up in the sense that incentives are not geared towards improving patient health and they're geared towards getting reimbursement dollars. I mean, to speak in terms of numbers here, they estimate by 2020 healthcare costs will be $5 trillion if health Healthcare alone were a country, it'd be the sixth largest country in the world. Just US healthcare. Uh, Yeah, it's even crazy. I mean, 62% 62, 62 of bankruptcies happen in the US um, related to medical bill expenses. There's a uh, 280 billion dollars spent on prescription drugs, and nearly half Americans are on one at least one prescription drug. So I think there's a huge potential to do something here, and I'm I'm, I'm certainly standing behind the full supporter of blockchain applicability and the potential for it to make a huge impact in healthcare. Um, I will mention too that I was at the HIMSS conference, which is the largest healthcare conference in the country a few months ago, and I met with this this group called Hashid Health. And they're basically, what they do is, they're basically large proponents of blockchain and healthcare. And they'll host conferences across the country and basically just try to stimulate growth. Because blockchain... As as an individual entity is not you, you can't really make money on blockchain. You know you'd make money potentially with the decrease in cost of the system. You'd make money on uh, the ways that you could build in increased functionality and charge for that. But it, it's kind of this weird catch twenty two where you know it, it brings tremendous value to people, but if it reduces costs and it reduce it reduces expenses and potentially revenue for some of these healthcare systems, what's the you know where is the incentive, and and we're in this 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 weird triangle where providers and call them doctors and hospitals get paid by insurance companies, which get paid by employers, which get paid you know by by people that work, and so it's this, this interesting triangular incentive system, and uh, and all in all, I think this this piece is is encouraging in the sense that it creates it creates a negative. Perspective. Uh, I should say. I shouldn't say negative, but it creates a skeptical perspective around blockchain, about blockchain and healthcare. And I think that the points they're making are just not that strong. And it, it convinces me that if this is the best opposition we have to blockchain's potential in healthcare, then we probably have a bright future ahead of us, at least in the medium to long term. Uh, I know that's a lot to take in there. Um,
2: well, well, this is this is really interesting. So. Where do you see it going? I mean, you're uh, on the forefront of this. I mean, you're seeing it every day. Where do you see blockchain diving in? At what point? Patient records, procedures, medications? Where do you think it's going to first take hit?
1: Yeah, so I think it's it's most likely going to be from the smaller organizations that that adopt it. Now, you would have to think what what is blockchain? How does it specifically help somebody? And blockchain, in the sense of interoperability or communicating, um, say, patient records from one organization to another, is the is the, like the plaguing problem in healthcare. I go into one hospital in Florida, and say I live in Florida, and then all of a sudden I'm on vacation and. Los Angeles and I'm trying to, I break my foot and my doctor wants to know my health records, they can't, they can't access that. And so if you have blockchain that could effectively, uh, you know, you could use it as a, as an external storage for your medical record. That's possible. Where I think the bigger potential would be is on uh pre-claim. So for insurance, you could say, uh, you could say something like, we're going to validate that all transactions say, every time you are, they say you take all the full demographic of somebody, you know, their age, you know, uh, what health plan they're on, you know, what your parents' health plan, all relevant data, all past medical records. And you say, based on all of these circumstances or criteria, we know with 78% likelihood that you're going to be reimbursed uh, for 90-plus percent of this operation. And so you're able to aggregate a much larger pool of data together, and that presents huge value for consumers and employers, which I think is where the the needle ends up moving, uh, because they're the ones who have true, decisive uh, ability, aside from regulation that stands in its way. but. I think, yeah, as, as kind of summarizing that piece, I, I think there's there's many different areas where blockchain makes an impact. It's probably not going to be something that gets it's it, it's massively, largely implemented all at once. It'll most likely be on smaller applications, almost replacing internal databases, and then they start to creep up and up as people learn about it. I mean, it's one thing when I at this conference talking to the, their executive. When you sit down with an executive at a healthcare company, even a say skilled nursing facility or post acute hospital or even a health plan, and you just explain the benefits of blockchain and what it could do for the organization over time they're like oh my god i get it you know it's kind of this moment that clicks and what what hashid health is trying to do is just get that moment of clicking in more people uh, across the country so i'm a full you know supporter.
2: You, you know this is the way i look at blockchain is you know, if it was the 1950s, you and I uh, would probably be gearheads because that's what guys would have been doing more or less uh, on their nerd uh, Sunday morning and afternoons. And we would be arguing the the uh, merits of carburetors versus fuel injectors.
1: <laughs> hey, I we can would still be, argue that with you if you want.
2: Yeah. And, and, and we would be arguing that uh, at top speed, fuel injectors do not Perform as well as carburetors uh, for delivering atomized fuel, which is still somewhat the case at very, very top speed. But, um, you know, uh, carburetors are also somewhat more complex, but uh, they are also able to be adjusted more finely in some regards over the entire arc of uh, the acceleration than uh, some fuel injectors. What I'm basically trying to say is that. What happens with any new technology is that we stand there and we look at it like it's a thing and we forget that it's part of an entire vehicle. And right now, you and I don't talk about fuel injectors. We probably won't with electric cars. Maybe we'll talk about lithium ion batteries versus air batteries versus, you know, hydrogen fuel cells, et cetera. We have all these different arguments. But over time, what happens is it fades to the background. It's one form or maybe a few forms of the technology dominates. We don't even care anymore. And then we just move on and actually use it. I think with healthcare, we can really look at the blockchain as being a highly uh, organized database that has the ability for uh, a whole lot of other features to be brought along with it. But it really is from the perspective of the consumer a database that happens to be centrally available and ostensibly protected from uh, any sort of um, hacking and uh, maybe exposure and, uh, you know, time and place uh, adjustments so that, you know, if you had a procedure on July 1st, uh, 1981, it would be there and nobody could adjust it, right? So that's my view. And I think the the political debates and the internal debates are, are, are sort of Hilarious when we look at it through that lens, we we're kind of like, all right, yeah, it's going to go this way anyway because it's called gravity; it's going to pull us in this direction. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you know, and and you could debate about it. It's it's like the same kind of debates I have with people about voice first, right? This morning, I I, I put out a brain scan of people texting versus speaking uh, to Siri or Alexa, and the cognitive load on that brain. Was ninety percent lower I'll, when they Let me say
1: this, Brian. Like as a as a slight anecdote here. Um, last night, or is it last afternoon? I I was going to sit down and I was going to write some write some pieces, some thoughts I had recently, and um, partly inspired by you, other partly inspired by just an aching hand from, from typing <laughs> so much. I was like, let me just do. So let me see how far I can go with voice and just on Evernote, just talking. I, I wrote maybe maybe two thousand words. Just yeah. just talking and they, you know, I would say we're at about 90% to 95%. You know, I'm going to have to go back and edit it, but it at least got me, got me, it got me really close to there. And I think I I sort of look at the ideal, you know, typing as, or the ideal call it text communication on the computer is just a combination of both. Maybe you're, you're typing something with bullets and it's a little complex to describe, but then if you're just typing, if you're just speaking in paragraphs, it makes perfect sense. So you can just hit the FN button and go right into it. So I, 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 sort of think for today, at least it's a, it's an ideal mix of both. Uh, but I, I found were, it to be incredibly useful and it's just a change of habit, you know, it's just hitting it that is. button, getting used to it. People don't, it's yeah, not- people aren't used to it.
2: It's the monochrome uh, world of of where we were with the personal computer. When the Apple One and Apple Two came out, it was monochrome. It was text on a screen. It was very annoying. There were usually amber screens. Go and look at what an amber screen looks like in today's world. You 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 couldn't even deal with it. You'd say, "I don't even want to look at that thing." <laughs> it literally burns your retina because your retina is not designed to look at black on color. It's white on 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 uh, color. And uh, back then, nerds didn't know that. plus it was just because it looked cool to them but we're in that black and white sort of uh monochrome world when we go to full color uh like for example when i dictate to siri now i use all of the formatting commands for a while i stopped doing it and i i put out a card it's called my uh, cheat sheet for people who really want to use siri for dictation you could say new paragraph exclamation point bullet underscore uh you know all these different things. Uh, now, me personally, what I use it for is I use it for notes. I, I I have a number of voice assistants. These are stuff. These are things I've made myself using um, uh, Raspberry Pi and my own technology. Where I I just give it notes all day long. And the the beauty of it is the AI I've built, the machine learning around it, organizes those notes in such a way where at the end of the day, I can tie them together visually or just letting the AI do it. And a lot of that uh, forms uh, some of my writing and some of my consultation. Sometimes I'll, c- I'll come up with a great idea and I have a, cons- uh, I have, I have a client that's looking for some you know, some ideas, some answers. And, you know, I'd be walking around. Uh, in fact, uh, I was skiing. Uh, I took my AI agent with me. I was uh, last weekend. <laughs> and I came up with an idea right after coming off the hill. And that particular system, I was using Siri and uh, AirPods. And that actually was an answer. It actually is already being put into use by this company. So, we have to change behaviors, right? Before we got used to typing, we used to write everything down. And I remember watching a lot of my friends who were—I uh, called them personal computer deniers back in that era. This, like, I call voice first deniers, and and they would say, "I just can't get used to taking notes on a computer. It just doesn't make sense. I want a notepad." And there's nothing wrong supp- with that. So I'm balanced. still
1: surprised that even even this even earlier. Uh, half an hour ago when you were describing the presentation you made that most of the people in the room were taking notes on paper, which to me, I'm like, man, Absolutely. really? We're still at that point. I, I don't know why you wouldn't open up your phone and just type into, because then what are you, you going to do why? with the paper? You're going to transcribe yeah. it into Evernote or something?
2: Well, you know why I think first off, uh, BBVA. Bank. It's,
1: I admit that it's, it's, it's largely cultural that, that people would assume you're just playing on your phone if you do it on your phone. I think that's a Um, big influence there.
2: Yeah, yes. But there's also your own desire to not be distracted. What I noticed in that group, which is absolutely just amazing, and as few groups I see this anymore, is everybody had pretty much their phone down, their iPad down while people were were talking. And I think it is cultural in a sense of a sign of respect that they wanted to listen to what Not just me, by the way. Uh, They wanted to listen to what was being said. And uh, they also wanted to write it down. They wanted to get the ideas down. You know, just like speaking, writing is in fact a form of lower cognitive load than typing. There's something about the flow of writing. My writing sucks, but I, I still do take notes, not as often. Um, But I notice the people who do take copious notes, they are actually doing some form of mental gymnastics that is encoding that idea in their mind. The idea of you mechanically moving your – there's research study, so I'm not just speaking out of my hindsight here. There's research study that shows that when you're doing a mechanical thing, like for example, if you're jogging and listening to a book, you're going to remember that book better. If you're listening to classical music with that book playing, you're going to remember the book uh, much better. In fact, most of the time, a secret, I'll let a big secret out. Whenever I have my audio books being read to me, which is more or less Siri Alexa, my own uh, AI that I've created, I overlay uh, atmospheric uh, music, primarily classically based, uh, things that have very little uh, drum beat, but uh, some rhythm to it. And I've found certainly this is my own empirical research my recognition of what I was reading or hearing read to me uh skyrockets in its uh, ability to to be remembered but now there's a couple of um studies that have coming ar- up around the world the japanese uh university in Japan did a study uh there's studies throughout Europe and there's studies uh, I think Harvard did a study about four years ago about music. And cogniz- cognition, mm, So yeah. what, I, what I'm trying to get to is the act of writing is more equated to the act of speaking than the act of typing. So the cognitive. Yeah, i certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you have to think I, I about the letters. It. You have to think about the yeah. letters. No, I know it, it, it takes fingers. more. It
1: takes more. You can't date. You can't drift away while you're doing it. Um, but let's exactly. let's move on. I want to make sure we hit. We have two fantastic topics left. Yeah. Uh, I'll let you kick this one off. So this was. This is on on the website readmultiplex.com, the uh, April 12th article from Jeff Bezos, and the, this I read. I've actually read it twice. Brian, why don't you kick this off and just kind of state the significance of what Jeff was trying to get to in this piece. Uh,
2: I will start with uh, with a quote from Jeff, which I think is probably a very one of the most powerful quotes I've heard a CEO in a long time. Um, you know, uh, where are we here? Uh, I got to get to that quote. It's actually the wrong one. Well, let me first give you the background on this. Jeff writes an investor letter ever since they've gone uh, public in 1997, and the investor letters typically um, are sort of a boring. A reenactment of what the business did that year, or you know, the the high order mission statement of the CEO, or or something like that. But this year, Jeff went way out, and he uh, pretty much delivered something that was more or less a, an open secret inside of Amazon, which they called the Day One philosophy. And the Day One philosophy is uh, is something encoded into the. Uh, the ethos of the company. In fact, the building that Jeff always works out of is called Day One. And Day One, uh, I will give you one of the primary quotes. The outside world can push you into Day Two if you can't embrace powerful trends quickly. If you fight them, you're probably fighting the future. Embrace them, and you have the tailwind. And that was one of the quotes from uh, this, um, this letter that Jeff wrote. And basically what he's saying is day one is you being a feisty company, uh, you're fighting stasis. Day two is equivalent to stasis, and that is uh, a lack of growth. And in nature, there's only one reality, you're growing or you're dying. That's a fact of life, it's a fact of nature. Things are being built or destroyed, and there, are, uh, there is entropy that ultimately takes over, entropy is the tendency of uh, systems to go into disorder humans are anti entropy agents if they're really acting uh, in in their in their programming you know we we, we organize the world and what typically and I'm seeing this so much with young startups, young startups, especially in this payment world, they go into stasis probably within two years and it's heartbreaking. They they do these minor innovations. Oh, we're doing this and we're going to do that and we're doing this. But they pretty much stop the, the big innovation. What Jeff is saying, we embrace this day one vitality where we're constantly trying to fight things. And I like, uh, for example, he says, resist proxies. As a company gets larger and more complex, there's a tendency to manage to proxies. This comes in many shapes and sizes, and it's dangerous, subtle, and very day two. A common example is a process as a proxy, right? Good process serves you so you can serve customers. But if you're not watchful, the process can become the thing. This is what this is this can happen very easily in large organizations. The process hmm. becomes the proxy for the result that you want. You stop looking at outcomes and you just make sure that you are doing the process right. Gulp, it's not that rare to hear a junior leader defend a bad outcome with something like this. Well, we followed the process. A more experienced leader will use it as an opportunity to investigate and improve the process. The process is not the thing. It is always worth asking, do we own the process or does the process own us? In a day two company, you might find it's the second. Uh, I -hmm. like this. Uh, I like this part. Uh, high velocity decision maker, d- d- decision making. Day two companies make high quality decisions, but they make high quality decisions slowly to keep the energy and dyna- dynamism of day one. You have you have to somehow make high quality, high velocity decisions. Easy for startups, not all of them, uh, and very challenging for large organizations. A senior team at Amazon is determined to keep our decision-making high-velocity decision-making high-velocity speed matters in business plus a high-velocity decision-making environment is more fun too we don't know all the answers but we we do have some thoughts and i encourage you i don't want to read the whole thing i encourage you to read all of his his thoughts about high-velocity decision-making and you Mm. want to know something i circulated this around a lot of a lot of folks. I, I know just from Read Multiplex, when I published this, uh, over 250,000 people have read that particular article uh, and uh, a lot of my subscribers absolutely loved it and commented on it. I believe that this is probably one of those letters that you should read no matter where you are in the corporate world. And I specifically say as a startup, because that whole idea of falling in love with the process... Has been sort of a a rock in my shoe with startups since I can remember, uh, especially in the banking and payment world. Uh, you know, you 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 sit down with these folks and they're they're young, the vitality is there, they're brilliant, and somebody is somebody has lied to them to say that we need to follow processes. And 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 you want to know what a process is? Um, sometimes it's a company's goals and mission. Sometimes the mission statement of the very company they're working on, working at, is in fact the process that is strangling them. And- Mm. That's where innovation stops. They do incrementalism. They're convinced that no big decisions can be made. They can, they're can. they convinced that no big movements can be made, that all the big ideas were already in place. We already made our basic system. Now we need to milk the cow. We got the cow. We now need to milk the cow. And this is frustrating. Amazon is not milking the cow. I mean, they're way beyond being a store. Most of Amazon's profits, if you wanted to count the profits, is coming from AWS, which is a cloud based computer service.
1: I think so much of what, what this stems from is the inevitable pull. It's like this catch 22 in business, where as your company gets larger, there's more and more inefficiencies. There's areas and there's holes. And so you're tempted to create standardizations around the process, right? Have checklists, have people do certain things. You have very specific, yeah. uh, jobs it, listen, for certain people. I, I got I, man- I to I
2: interrupt. I got to interrupt. Anybody that's carrying around checklists. Take the checklist, tear it up. If you get, the window opens, throw it out the window and have a confetti parade. Um, you know, people carrying around checklists, manifestos, and all that. It's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. It absolutely constrains engineering. It constrains creativity. I, I,
1: I will. I will concede to that thought in some areas, uh, but in many hold areas, it's it, nah, not. in your air. When your airplane takes off, or your doctor is about to That's do not surgery on your
2: leg. Hold it! Hold it. That's not a startup. No, I know. I know. No, uh, no, okay, yes. no, no, okay. If I'll, I'll you're doing brain that, surgery, it, if you're doing brain surgery, yes. But let me tell you, startups are not brain surgery, nor is operating a company brain surgery. If you're sitting around so telling people true. to indoctrinate by doing checklists, and that's how you get things done, that's that's what I called old man philosophy. Because the older you get, the more you're like, oh, I got to get my checklist. I did I have my bowel movement today? Did you know? I mean, this is this is the crap I'm seeing. People, VCs are telling young companies to do this crap and they're asking them, why aren't they innovating anymore? Go to the checklist. That's why they're not innovating. And yeah. Jeff Bezos is basically giving you kernels, uh, nuggets of gold right here saying, this is why, you know, you, somebody walks into Jeff's office. Hey, Jeff, you know, we got a whole lot of servers that we're running our, our uh, store on. You know, I got this wild idea. Why don't we give it to our competitors to run their stores on? You know all of the secret technology we created. Uh, what do we call AWS? Why don't we give it to Macy's and all these other companies? They can run on our servers, and we'll make a little bit of money.
0: Mm.
2: And Jeff is, you know, what I tell you, what a checklist person would do: they'd look at their checklist. No, we're 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 an e-commerce site. There are our competitors. We're not going to do that. Well, we might make some money where they're. No, we're not going to help our competitors in any way. Do you see the point? Is when you box your thinking in. And you don't look at the greater opportunity. And you define your company in one sense. Jeff does not define his company as an e-commerce company, right? Everybody else tries to do that. Oh, you know, you say Amazon. Oh, yeah, they sell things. That's not what Amazon really is. Amazon's a facilitator. That's all they've ever been, a facilitator. And every single payment company on the planet is a facilitator. You know, when Mm -hmm. I walk into a payment company and I ask, why aren't you doing voice commerce or voice payments? They look at me like, oh, we're going to be at the bottom of the stack. So when, when somebody finally does a transaction, they'll use our API and I'm going to thank you very much. You're now a commodity. You're worthless in the voice first world.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So true. Uh, And we'll include this, this, this note, this letter, I should say with Jeff, one thing I love too, is that he always includes the 1999, 1997 original letter. Uh, so we'll put that in the show notes. So, so let's move on. I think this is, in, in many ways, this is last, but certainly not least here. So this is a brilliant piece, technologyreview.com, The Dark Secret at the Heart of AI. In many ways, this is just visually very appealing. Um, this, I love th- it. Brian, you found this piece by Will Knight, uh, April 11th, which basically shows you know, on, on the visual aspect, and then we'll get into the content. But there's art pieces here that are created by the Google Deep Dream, the program that adjusts an image to stimulate the pattern recognition capabilities of a deep neural network. And I, I found these incredibly inspiring to see what you could do visually. And even, you know, artists in the sense are not yeah. safe from uh, from automation. What, what, how, do you, how do you digest the thought of this whole piece kind of as a, as a, Conclusion, I guess, for lack of a better word, but where, where, where does this piece? What does this piece? Uh, what does it speak to you? What does it tell
2: you? Well, well, Mike, uh, good good lead into this. Uh, first off, Technology Review is a publishing arm of uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, otherwise known as MIT. Will Knight is an incredible uh, incredible writer, and uh, I actually got to read this piece early on. And you know, this is what this is really about. When you go to a computer scientist today and say is AI good enough, they will some t- somehow try to objectify it in a very logical and mechanical way and they'll say, well, no, it's not quite ready. And I've gotten on t- many debates uh, on Quora and Twitter with really very... W- very intelligent individuals. You know, people lead VCs, people, are, you know, you know, pretty much uh, instruct VCs where to put their money. And they're saying AI is not ready. The voice for us revolution is not coming. It's 20, 50, 100 years away. The same stuff the guys in the white coats used to say about uh, that worked at IBM, you know, personal computers, never going to make it. And, you know, th- th- this is the whole thing. But it's much more profound with AI. And this is what the article is talking about. Yeah, I call it the dark AI. And um, a lot of us researchers have known about this a long time. Basically, deep learning is all about machine learning. Deep uh, machine learning is all about building neurons if you're doing it the right way. And imagine what a neuron looks like. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll get a visual on this with the um, uh, the link to this. A neuron is a, uh, a ball of connectivity. And in reality, we don't really even display what a neuron looks like, essentially. A neuron has potentially thousands of interconnectivities. And I'll give you an example of what a neuron looks like inside your brain. Imagine the first time you you ever smelled pancakes was your mom delivering pancakes to you at the, uh, in a high chair at the table. And there's something about that smell and that taste of maple syrup. And now I'm adding pan- pancakes mixed with maple syrup. I'm mixing in mom, the visual aspect of mom, the table, the chair, uh, you know, the whole texture and what you felt like eating that. That is all part of a neuronal connection. But let's just call that the pancake connection. If I reach deep into your mind... 40, 50, 30 years later, and I tried to pull that memory out, coming with it, if you can imagine this metaphorically, would be thousands of interconnectivities. Let me give you some of them. You had your first child yourself, and um, you uh, are serving pancakes to your child. You're now the mom. And uh, your child, she's picking that up and eating it. And that's now connected to your first memory. And uh, you connected to maybe the time you met your husband and you went out for a pancake breakfast after he proposed to you. All of these things are hardwired, literally, hardwired neuronally to the original aspect of what pancakes were. When you go to computer scientists and you talk about AI, a lot of times when they're talking about it, they're They're thinking that they're in control of these systems. They're thinking, oh, you know, I programmed it. I know what it's going to do. Well, guess what MIT just is kind of telling you? No, you aren't. You're not in control any longer. In fact, you don't even know how it arrived at an answer. You don't even know what their deep learning systems are doing, and what they're doing is they're doing it faster than your end time X calculations would have ever have imagined. This is a good and a bad thing. And of course, there's some humorous sides to this. Uh, it's just whenever we create, we create black boxes that we don't really even understand what we've made, we get confounded and even angry over the fact that we can't explain it. And it, what I just explained about the human brain, we really don't understand. For example, I can cut off unfortunately, maybe 90% of your brain. There's a good chance that I may not be able to get to the memory of pancakes. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. It turns out that maybe the human brain stores things in a fractal hologram and we don't even know how the brain works. So therefore we're creating quote unquote artificial intelligence. And now we don't even understand how these interconnectivities are storing data. Even though we've built it, we don't know what the structure is. And it's getting to the point where our AI is getting so complex that we don't even have systems to go backwards to try to to decode it. And I'll give you an example. Uh, There was a medical study being done uh, by, I believe, a Google AI system. And it was trying to correlate the records at one particular hospital. And it developed an extraordinary correlation and causality Uh, about the potential of somebody developing schizophrenia. In fact, the accuracy of somebody being schizophrenic from this system was 100x times better than the human doctor. Mm. And they don't know how to explain it. They're examining it. They're looking at it. They're trying to come with some cognition of how could it possibly have drawn these conclusions. And so when we have people who... I call them armchair ivory tower or Silicon Tower uh, postulators that sit there and tell you what the future is going to look like, and they don't even quite understand the technology themselves. It's kind of funny. It's like this. It's like the IBMer in 1957 said that the whole computer. Industry is basically done. We only need 150 computers. I've calculated it on my slide rule. He literally said that. I took out my slide rule. I calculated it. Mm-hmm. The world will only need 150 computers, and that's it. Yeah. Now, certainly, obviously, that. Yeah, it, it, it sounds all very humorous, but that's going on today. So, what this MIT article is doing? It's not only showing that AI is probably going to be much more powerful. Than we could ever imagine our neural networks that we're building because our original our original neural networks were hardwired. It was literally I I used to wire them in the, in the 1970s 1980s. My my neural networks that I was experimenting with were coils essentially, and we were rewiring them and wiring them. Later we we, we simulated them in in silicon, but it was always hard until massive computer technology arrived, and that's where we are today. We're deep learning. Really deep learning and neural uh, connections gets, uh, uh, growing.
1: There is a great point. There's a, uh, the, you know, across when, when when Deep Blue first beat uh, the chess champion and then, you know, Google's Deep Mind beat uh, the Go champion, which they thought could never happen. There was a, a deep, uh, it's called Q Network. Uh, they tested it on, oh, yeah. I think, 50, 50 Atari games and Space Invaders, Pac-Man, Pong, Asteroids, those kind of games. And all they fed the system was scores and data, and eighty-four by eighty-four pixel screen, and they told it go and win. And they didn't even they didn't tell the they didn't tell it the game they didn't tell it the rules everything it. else don't need it. And and, and basically the system uh, sat and trained for about two weeks, and then after two weeks it learned and it, and it beat everyone else at the game. And basically it tried it ended up trying things that humans didn't even think of. You know, it would try specific tactics and things that you know intelligence is like water, where it just flows towards the easiest best method and. If there's a shorter way, it'll find it, and it was just no. amazing to see that you don't have to give it very much for it to sort of just learn, just like bricks on a house, just kind of stacking up and saying, "This is this is the, this is feedback. I'm learning, and I'm taking it, and I'm not I'm not jaded with the human intelligence or the human, say, uh, foundation of what you know what specific games may and I think that, you know may entail, and I think that's kind of that's uh, that stems the fear, right? That's like the crux of the fear is that what if there are things that we program into AI or, or, even a game. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it takes some roundabout way to get there, fulfilling the rules that it said it would do and, you know, endlessly just killing everyone involved and not, not, you know, I, I say that jokingly, <laughs> not as a serious notion, but that, that's the concern of well, uh, Elon and and that whole uh, group of people who are just being very cautious around AI because all it requires is constant progress it just has to get better at some 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 speed. I mean, it doesn't have to be leaps and bounds, but if it, if it keeps going quickly and quick, if it keeps growing, then eventually it gets to a point where you know, it's, 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 it's a higher capacity because humans only output value in two ways. We output value in physical. We can physically move things. We can physically do things. We can pick cotton. We can move, we can solder things. We can physically do things. And then we, we have mental capacity. You know, we can generate ideas. We can, we can generate code. We can generate art. We can generate whatever. Uh, but you know, category one things are quickly becoming obsolete. Category two things are on the early frontier, but also facing the same potential threat.
2: Mike, you know, really really good points there. And and I got to tell you, I I, I don't just write about this stuff and talk about it. I've been researching it. Uh, my personal assistant has been following me around for over five years, right? Three years, most uh, most aggressively. And the context that is developed by knowing me contextually and then drawing its own neuronal connections based upon what I've done in the past is absolutely fascinating. It, the, the robust results it gets from almost predicting things that I'm going to need or going to want to do. I mean, this is where we're going to be living in the next 10 years. Most definitely, uh, the next ten years, the next five years. But what 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 I'm saying is, and what this study is kind of, or this article is kind of pointing out, is that when we try to look at artificial intelligence, we think it needs to know everything. What it really needs to know is context. It needs to know as much context about the person asking the questions or interacting with it. For example, in the early part of the article, it talks about a self-driving system that learns, not by rule, by just watching human beings. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. some people say, well the big guys are going to win that because they have access to a whole lot of big data. It only needs to watch one person successfully drive a number of times and it's got it. It doesn't need to look at 10,000 yeah, or hundred thousand yeah. or 50,000. It's crazy about it. Right. So if you look at how a child learns, uh, and I know this cause I'm raising children is children focus on what they need to know at the moment. They don't care about the bigger picture. So when you teach a child, a new game, they literally are learning like AI they they like for example you're teaching them tennis they don't care about love they don't care about match point all they care about is getting the ball to hit the rack the tennis racket that's it and mm-hmm. what that's ai, AI fruit <laughs> that's right and so with ai most ai most scientists unfortunately and this is why I take Steve Jobs-like characters to make these things become realistic in the world. Because if you leave it up to technologists, they'll say, it's not ready yet. It's not ready yet. It's already ready. It's already working. My, my personal assistant's already doing an incredible job. Uh, Siri, Alexa, and Cortana is not a personal assistant. It's just a voice-activated uh, uh, voice-first system. Anyway, when you're able to train things focused like that, when a child says, okay, I hit the racket, now what do I need to do? Well, you got to get it over the net. Okay, now you get it over the net. Now what? Well, you want to get it over the net so the other person can't hit it as uh, as a return. Oh, now I get right, it. Right, right. You, yeah. st-
1: you stack on layers of complexity and sophistication into the game.
2: That's exactly it. So. When a computer scientist starts looking at these problems, they're saying, okay, I'm going to need a big data set. I'm going to, I'm going to take N million people, you know, N to the million people, and I'm going to run it through a big neural network and then I'm going to get a result. Oh yeah, sure. You, the only reason you're doing that is because you have access to N and you want to do that. All you need is one because the only thing that's important is to the one, to the individual. Now, if you have a great neural surgeon, you follow that great neurosurgeon. It looks at how it activates uh, uh, you know, different parts of the body, how they go through uh, making particular cuts. And all you need is that one expert. You mm-hmm. don't need a 1,000. Yeah. And if you do get 1,000 experts, great. That's later on. And then yeah, you, can, uh, you do, can correlate.
1: We should do a show on, on what happens uh, when this becomes a reality because that's a whole other hour-long conversation. Oh, no. Uh, that, that'll I, I, mean, actually, I, think, I think we largely agree does. there. Yeah.
2: No, we could go on for dozens of shows just talking about the fact that everybody's job, every single job on this planet, other than cleaning up after the the AI, meaning uh, the messes that they make, is going to be replaced. Um, I, I believe on our list of things to talk about, there's a salad, there's a salad machine that uh, is going to be uh, uh, sold uh, or installed in a whole lot of businesses around the country. Uh, there's a burger flipping machine. Uh, oh yeah, I, I saw have that. Per- yeah.
1: The philosophers I have a friend, will be the uh, only one left.
2: Yeah, I have a friend that uh, is actually taking a Japanese barista vending machine and making it voice first, and come bring it to the United States. It's not ready yet, but basically, what it does yeah. is it takes it takes raw coffee at the top. It's got a roaster in the middle. It's got a grinder right below it, and it can it can produce over nineteen thousand variations of ingredient uh, of coffee i mean he's got all these different variations and stuff like that obviously this one vending machine with a voice first interface replaces an entire starbucks Literally, the volume that can go through the store can replace, uh, this particular vending machine, can replace a medium-sized Starbucks. It's faster than a barista. Now they got to just and,
1: put it on wheels, and it can drive around anywhere.
2: <laughs> and get yeah. this. It's got, a, it's got a video screen, so you could see inside the machine as it's moving through each process. So you're literally watching the mechanical barista inside of that. Now, my question is, and this is what I'll leave our listeners with, and you, Mike, and maybe we'll pick this up in another show, is what happens when starbucks really realizes that what happens when they bite the bullet and they say we're going to let 250,000 people go and we're just going to install these in the store and the only job that's going to be left is cleaning up you know the the cups that are on the floor and and the spillages and and that's going to be about it so this is not just and by the way uh, on the other side of that programmers are going to be replaced what i'm talking to you about this neuronal connections the building of neurons once you've built the software to make that there's no need for a programmer again if you've built it the right way it literally programs itself it builds itself so the idea of the that you know, oh i'm a technologist i'm going to have a job the barista is going to be out of work or i'm a vc or i'm a banker or i'm a doctor i'm a lawyer i'm a dentist i can go down almost every one of these professions and i have in a study I've, I've, i'm actually working on and every one of these professions are not going to be impacted by this technology. It's going to be replaced. So as a yeah. society, we're going to have to face what that really means.
1: There, there's actually a uh, study that Oxford um, University put out that went through every job, every every career, and gave it a percentage chance that it will be replaced by robots in the next 20 years. They went through 700 jobs, and they literally just gave a percentage next to every one. Um, and uh, the, the, some of the top, I mean, the, I won't go through, obviously, all of them, but a few of them were just like sewers, watch repairers, tax, prepar- tax preparers, uh, accountants. I mean, no one is safe in this sense. Truck drivers. I'm sure on this list. So I'll include that in the show notes. Is a fairly yeah, interesting. Yeah, taxi cab drivers. Uh, right. I mean, I mean, twenty twenty so years is not that far away. So I, I think we we really should dedicate some some deep intellectual conversation to to this topic.
2: I personally, Mike, don't think there's enough conversation about it, and I think it's too politically charged for a lot of people. There, there are those. that- No, and, are, and
1: look at the, the political. The political redirect is is the other way around. I mean, it's like we're getting. It's like the, the seas are rising, and yet we're uh, we're trying to sell uh, sell real estate on the beach. I mean, when Trump says you know more jobs for factory workers, it's like, well, is that really? I mean, are we? Is that even? Is that even a goal worth pursuing? It seems like the bigger question is. Just what you're asking is, what do we do when this happens? Because it's gonna, it's gonna happen like a tsunami. But yeah, let's I mean, let's pause yeah. before we dive into that because I know we will, we will oh, go, go for hours wherever. on
2: that. I mean, almost, we're we already a a the ready. hour mark
1: now. Um, yeah. Well, if people are still listening at this point, thank you very much, and look forward to the next show, Brian. As always, really enjoyed it.
3: Thank you, Mike. All right, bye-bye. bye bye. Bye. you